Hi, everyone. It's Paula Ferris. Uh, Welcome to another edition of Journeys of Faith. So my next guest would give up his life to protect another's, even if that person offended him. That's because he's a member of the Sikh faith. I'm talking to Simran Jeet Singh. He wears a turban. He's never cut his hair or trimmed his beard. And he says what's frustrating about being so visible is that he's also completely invisible. That's because people don't know a whole lot about his faith, even though the Sikh faith is the fifth largest religion in the world. On this episode, he's going to tell us how his family was instrumental in getting the NCAA to change its rules about players wearing turbans during basketball games. He'll also tell us what the Sikh faith is all about and why he would sacrifice his life for yours. Here's Simranjit Singh on this week's edition of Journeys of Faith. Simranjit Singh, thank you so much for joining Journeys of Faith. It's a pleasure to have you here in the studio. Of course, yeah. Thank you for having me. So you are a professor of religion. Can you explain that? Sure. Yeah, I'm a professor of religion. I'm currently at NYU as a fellow. Um, I've been teaching various religions, Islam, Sikhism, Hinduism, Buddhism. Okay. You have your master's in theological studies, so you know a lot about a lot of different religions, correct? Uh, Yeah, probably more than most people would ever want to (laughs) know. But you practice, as you say, Sikhism, S-I-K-H. Most of us see that word and we think a Sikh, but are we mispronouncing it? Yeah, I mean, there's there's two pronunciations. The original in the Punjabi language is Sikh. So we say Sikhi as the name of our tradition. Um, In English, that would come out as Sikhism. Sikh is the colonial pronunciation. So when the British came to India, they started saying Sikh. Okay. And so that's become popularized in English. And so, you know, I hear both. Both are fine. They're both acceptable? They're both acceptable. I would prefer Sikh, but, you know, I'm not offended if someone says Sikh. Wonderful. So I really want to explore the Sikh religion. Um, You authored a reporter's guide, and it really just helps reporters um, report accurately on the Sikh tradition and the faith in general. So you authored this. I want to ask you, what do Sikhs believe? Sure. I mean, the the basic tenets of, of the Sikh tradition um, center around the two core ideas. Um, one is oneness, and the second is love. And everything in the Sikh tradition builds on those two aspects. And so the basic idea is we believe that the entire world is interconnected, that God is present equally in every aspect of this world. So we would say something in our tradition, um, it comes up in our scriptures as Kalak 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 The creator is in the creation, and the creation is in the creator. Divinity permeates absolutely all spaces. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's that's a core aspect of our theological belief. And that comes out as uh, if you truly believe that God is equal in everyone. We believe in absolute equality. Everyone and everything. Are we talking animals too or just people? Exactly. So if, if you want to break it down and sort of a the way we think about things in science, you could say like at an atomic level or molecular level, everything that is produced in this world mm. is filled with God. And so the, the world is actually divine, every mm. aspect of it. I was reading this reporter's guide that you had authored about Sikhism. I didn't realize that it's the fifth largest religion in the world. That's right. Yeah. And, and probably the main reason why most people don't know that Sikhism is the fifth largest is because most of the Sikh community still lives in the homeland of Punjab. That's in mm. South Asia, um, northwest India and modern day Pakistan. Is and the 25 homeland. million approximately? About 25 million okay. uh, Sikhs around the world, but more than 20 million live in Punjab still. Okay. So the diaspora exists uh, and there are Sikhs all over the world and there have been for centuries. Right. Um, but the relative population is pretty small. And so many people, especially in America, 
haven't actually come across as sick because mm-hmm. there, you know, there are 500,000 of us here. That's not that much. Half relatively. million. Your Twitter account says everyone needs a sick friend. Yeah, I don't know if everyone needs a sick friend. I just, <laughs> I just want people to like me, so I, I say they, they need to be my friend. But yeah, but it's a very <laughs> peaceful religion, very peaceful religion about love and oneness. It is. Um, so much of what we teach in our tradition, again, going back to this idea of oneness, if we believe that everyone is filled with divinity and we are equally divine, uh, then we want to reduce suffering. We don't mm-hmm. want people to, to, to feel hurt in this world. And so um, that aspect of, of achieving harmony and justice for everyone is such an important part of our tradition. Mm-hmm. You say everybody has the divinity within them. How do you uniquely tap into that? You know, I think about that a lot now because I have two young girls at home. I have a one-year-old and a three-year-old. And um, Congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, they're still alive. Congrats to them <laughs> for surviving me. <laughs> um, but, but I think a lot about actually how do you raise kids in such a way that it is their intuitive impulse to see people in that way. And, and the reason that I'm asking the question in that way is I think my parents did that for us. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't actually, I, I, I'm not able to see people without divinity. And then if we want to step back and say, well, where, where, where do so many of our problems come from in our society? It comes from this idea that like there are people who are better or worse, more holy or less holy, right? And higher caste, lower caste. You're dispelling a notion that's out there. That right. That's what our ranking. society teaches us, okay, right? Okay. Like whether we say it on the basis of race, right? Like mm-hmm. whiteness is preferred over blackness in our right. society. Uh, wealth is privileged over poverty. And so we're we're taught to live in such a way that we see people as better or worse mm-hmm. in, in our society. Um, and, and what I think we really need to do is, is step back and say, you know, all of our teachings tell us that people are equal, that God is in everyone, and we should treat everyone that way. So how do we change the way that we teach our kids? That's something that I'm thinking wow. about a lot these days. There's no hierarchy according to your scriptures, and there shouldn't be a hierarchy. We're all, like you said, children of God. In, on the same playing field, level playing field. Right, exactly. Yeah, and, and even if you just go to the basic logic yeah. in the Sikh tradition, if if each of us is equally divine, mm-hmm. our, you know, our, our prophets, our gurus said this, if each one is equally divine, how could we possibly say men are better than women? Like right. patriarchy is unacceptable in our tradition. How could it we is. say that somebody who is born to a different family is better than someone from like caste is not acceptable in our tradition. So it's right? all about equality in, in, in your religion. You said there's no patriarchy. Women and men are viewed the exact same. That's right. That's the ideology. Mm-hmm. Of course, in practice, it comes out, you know, as we see in our society. I see it in Christianity right? <laughs> too. <laughs> exactly. Submit to the male authority. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so unfortunately the, the realities are never the ideals. Sure. Um, but we always have to remember what our ideals are so we can try and live them. Were you always a sick? Did you grow up in a sick home? I know you grew up in San Antonio, correct? That's right. Yeah. Okay. And home you're... of the Spurs. Well, with, oh, one of the <laughs> my team <laughs> had to get that in there, right? I had to, yeah. My so, <laughs> so you grew up in a in a sick home. Were your parents immigrants? Had they been living in the United States for a while? They were born in South Asia. They were okay. born um, at the time it was India when they were born. Okay. Um, yeah, my parents immigrated in the seventies. Um, my father came as an engineer, um, and and, so, and both of my parents were sick. They came from sick families, mm-hmm. and actually, my. Uh, father tells me stories about how he came first before they were married. Um, he came as a PhD student and he came with $11 in his pocket. Wow. And actually he spent, unfortunately, 
<laughs> he spent almost half of that uh, on an omelet on his layover in France. Oh, <laughs> so, so he came with about $8 in his pocket, actually, oh, when, he, when he arrived. Um, and he went straight to San Antonio? He was doing his PhD in Philadelphia. Okay. So he had a brother in New Jersey, stayed with his brother and his sister-in-law, um, and then started school in Philadelphia. Who hopefully fed him because $8 was not going to go very far, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, and probably take the rest of his money. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> um, but he started his PhD, and I think um, it was at that time, it was the first time in his life um, – where people started asking him questions about why he looked the way that he did. He had a turban. He was wearing his turban. He had a beard. Um, you know, certainly stuck out like a sore thumb in West Philadelphia, where he was where he was studying um, and living. And um, and so for him, that was sort of a a real uh, inflection point about you know, is this something that I want to continue doing, um, or is this something that I'm willing to let go? Um, and he were- couldn't just exist. As he was, he had to have an explanation for who he was. Right, exactly. Because, you know, he was in the 70s. No one knew who he was. He was visibly different. Um, and so people wanted to know. And soon after he arrived, you know, we had the Iran, the Iranian revolution where, mm-hmm. you know, there was quite a bit of tension with, with the Iranian state um, here in the U.S. And, uh, and he started receiving actually that, that sort of questioning of difference actually became animosity because people started asso- associating his turban and beard with with the Shah, with Khomeini, and um, and those were the types of racial slurs he started receiving. Mm. And so it, it turned very quickly from a question of who am I and why do I do what I do to um, can I survive living in this way? Um, and, you know, I wasn't— Being questioned, why are you here? And right. And the, the, uh, the, the false accusations. Why did your dad decide to stick it out? Well, I'll say, this, I'll, I'll say what he's told me, and that is in, in those moments— the first time he's really reflecting on, you know, why he wears, he'd worn it all his life. It didn't really mean all that much to him besides, you know, the rest of my family does it. Uh, it wasn't, you know, I don't think he would even describe it as a religious commitment, mm-hmm. even though it, it, it was. It was a religious article of faith. Um, the The reflection for him was that his faith to him meant the values that it instilled in him. And so these ideas of oneness and love and justice and these things that in, in a very particular way shaped the person that he was and, and gave him a sense of the type of person he wanted to be. Mm. Um, that's what made him choose to continue wearing the turban. And, and he tells me, I, I know it's going to be tough, but those values matter more to me than anything else. Wow. And the challenge to see the divinity in his accusers and the people that were probably trying to assassinate his character was, I would imagine, a challenge too. Right. Right. Exactly. I, I think so. Um, but again, when one is raised to see that, right? It's it's kind of like you really can see the good in all of people. I try. It's hard sometimes. I have people who have attacked me in my life just based on how I look and my turban and my beard and yell out racial slurs. Um, what kind of things do they say? <laughs> well, I'll say the ones that are probably suitable for air, but okay. you know, the, typically <laughs> now it'll be terrorist, uh, ISIS, um, in the you know. At the peak of the war on terror, it was Osama, Al Qaeda. Um, when I was growing up, it was Saddam. San- um, My dad was Lebanese. Well, he passed away. I'm half Lebanese, but he used to get the same right. reference as well. To right, right, exactly. Mm-hmm. So yeah, and you'll sort of understand very quickly that so much of this comes from what's happening in our foreign policy. Right, right? like it's the '90s. You're one thing. The mm-hmm. '2000s, you're something else. Now I'm something right. else. Um, I would imagine. 70s, yeah. But you grew up in San Antonio. Mm-hmm. Uh, what year were you born? 
84. So you're born you born in San Antonio? I was born and raised in San Antonio. Right. So you're born and raised in San Antonio. I would imagine in San Antonio there weren't a lot of people that looked and acted and believed what you believed in. Right, exactly. Yeah, I mean, we were the only turban sick family there. I had three brothers. I have three brothers. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're four sick boys running around. Uh, you know, the Your mother had fields. four boys? <laughs> I know, my poor mom. Oh, my gosh. Because <laughs> I'm trying to see the divinity in everyone, including your four crazy know, boys. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, we were we were the only six with turbans in San Antonio at the time, and so for our parents, it became, um, you know, there there were two real questions. Both, I would say, are related to survival, right? Like, how do you literally survive in the midst of a world where there is where there's violence against people who look different, and and many times who are seen as the enemy. Mm-hmm. And then there's another form of survival, which is how do you uh, preserve your heritage, right? If you want your lineage to survive, your tradition to survive, um, and you live in a society where what you are doing and what you believe is not normative, how do you how do you raise kids in a way where they actually value that and cherish that and want to embrace it as opposed to reject it and try and fit in with everyone around them? And that, yeah, that was a real challenge for us. That was hard for you? Were there moments where you just said, I want to fit in? I don't want to do this anymore? There were, I, I think, always, and even now, I wish, I, I, I think about fitting in, right? I, I don't feel like I fit in anywhere that I am, right? If I'm um, on the Upper East Side of New York where I live now, I stick out. If I'm home in Texas, I stick out. If I go to India, Punjab, where my parents are from, I stick out. So I don't really have a place where I truly fit in. Uh, there are places where I feel like I fit in, and especially as a kid, uh, there were places where I was where I feel like I could completely forget that I didn't fit in, right? And that would be when we played sports. So my brothers and I were big in basketball, soccer, football, baseball, like all that stuff. And we would, when we were playing then, we would forget. Not so much anymore. Like I, I think I'm a little bit more conscious of it mm-hmm. now. Um, but as a kid, um, it, it, like to the people around me, were also kids, it really didn't matter at that time that I looked different as long as, you know, I could triple pass and shoot. Like that's, that's all that mattered then. So, it's all about the stats. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, in that sense, um, growing up with three brothers, like sports were our sort of uh, refuge. Like mm-hmm. it was a place where we had actual liberation from any sort of weight that we were carrying as or discrimination. As minorities. Yeah. I mean, we it wasn't totally free. So I don't I don't want to overly romanticize it. Right. Like there were referees who wouldn't let us play. There were, Wait, there were people referees. who attacked us. Wait, there were referees that would not let you play because you wore a turban? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it happened often. And usually what would happen is um, my teammates and our coaches, you know, this happened to my brothers too, um, teammates and coaches would sort of get our backs and, and sort of talk them into it. But, you know, I had referee once in a soccer game squeeze my turban and, like, pat it down and say, I need to check for weapons. You could be hiding bombs under there, right? Like just things like that. Um, Yeah, we had to get rule changes. My my younger brother was the first to play NCAA basketball with the turban. He had to get the NCAA to update its policies. We had to get... um, Where did your brother play? At Trinity University in San Antonio. Okay. Um, I had to petition the United States Soccer Federation to allow turbans, which is the governing body for soccer in the U.S. As I was not even a teenager then. So it was my mom doing most of the work, but mm-hmm. she would sit me down in her office every evening and we would write those letters. And that's, do you, you know. do you think that that stems from racism or just ignorance? The fact that they wouldn't allow you to wear 
your turban, or maybe it was both. I think it was both. Um, I think, I think what we when we talk about institutionalized discrimination, I think a lot of times what we're talking about is um, a set of rules that were written at a time or even now, right, um, by people who weren't thinking about the impact it would have on the plethora of people that they're trying to serve. I don't think when FIFA was writing its rules, they were thinking about eliminating headwear so that, mm-hmm. you know, they could keep Sikhs and Jews and Muslims out. I think they were doing it because they were thinking about safety and, and what's normative, right? And like the assumption is nobody would wear that. Nobody would wear headwear mm-hmm. because they're thinking about a certain population. Um, but then as I, I think one of the challenges I found is as we've tried to update those rules over time, people sort of dig their heels in and say it really is an issue of safety. Now, I think it's ridiculous. Like I've never heard anybody with my hair or <laughs> the piece of cloth on my head when I'm playing basketball or soccer. It's Your probably protected them. protects you. Yeah, exactly. Like, and them, right? It's a cushion yeah. if, if we're about to hit heads. And um, yeah, I've, I've playing 20 years of soccer. I only had one concussion. And like, you know, that's pretty you just solved <laughs> that. I think you just solved the concussion crisis, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. So I don't, I don't think it's it's intentionally mm-hmm. racist when the rules are first, first written, but I think the inability to um, step back and reassess and say, okay, maybe we're trying to serve a more diverse set of mm-hmm. people than we initially thought, and so let's change. I think there's this, we have this weird obsession with the rules are written, and so let's stick with them because that's what's fair. Right. Right, and and. A lot of times our rules or our laws don't make sense in our society and, mm-hmm. and, and they are discriminatory or they're excluding um, and we should be more comfortable revisiting them. Uh, when I spoke with Amna Nawaz, a dear friend of mine who actually had recommended that you come on the podcast mm. to talk about the sick faith, she was explaining that she doesn't veil. It's a choice or it should be a choice for most Muslim women to veil. Is wearing a turban in the sick faith, is it a choice or is it a mandate? It's, it's a mandate. Um, Sikhs are expected to wear turbans. Uh, but like you have in every other religious community, you have different levels of practice and and um, uh, different ways in which people observe their mm-hmm. religious practices. And so, um, so yes, it is it is expected that a Sikh will wear a turban. But at the same time, not every Sikh wears a turban. If that makes sense. Yes, and females wear tur- wear turbans. Females, For females, it's optional. Okay. Um, and so, um, they are. Less less likely to wear turbans than men, mm-hmm. but they have the full access to wearing a turban if they would like. Right. Six typically physically present. One of the things that stands out is the turban, but there are five specific areas, um, articles of faith. Mm-hmm. The mm-hmm. unshorn hair, so that means your hair has never been cut. Right, exactly. Okay. And a kid, in my, a kid in my building this morning who was asking, he's six, he was asking me about my why, why do you wear that thing? I mean, you know, I've been getting this question since yeah. I would myself was What do you tell six. a six-year-old? Yeah, exactly. So I, I, didn't, I didn't say anything about religion, mm-hmm. right? I just said my hair is really long and I keep it covered. And he wanted to know how long my hair was. He asked if he could see it. I told him, wait, I said next time we go swimming, you can see it. So, mm-hmm. you know, that was our conversation. But yeah, these are like very, very common questions. Um, hair has not been cut since I was born. Uh, I'll never cut it. Same okay. with my beard. Um, your beard has never been my beard never trimmed, trimmed or shaved I, it's perfect why don't you <laughs> if, if your beard has never been trimmed you should have like a long as easy top I do type beard. so I, I roll it up and then pin it in and everybody has like different styles same with the turbans uh-huh. colors uh, shapes beards like some people mm-hmm. roll it up some people gel it down some people okay. leave it fully out yeah I wish mine was longer I have like I have beard envy <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah. So, so, so your yeah. hair had, and your beard has never been cut. Um, exactly. What What are some of the other What are some of the other ways you physically uh, present yourself? I also believe you have a comb. A comb, comb that I keep in my hair. Okay. Uh, so that's under my turban. Um, I have a bracelet called a gara. It's on, you're wearing it on your right wrist? Wearing it on my right wrist. You wear wrist. it at all times? I wear it at most times. Um, okay. When I'm the, – the expectation is you would wear it at all times. I take mine off when I'm working out um, or I'm running. Okay. Especially – that was a habit that started when I was playing like contact sports and mm-hmm. then, it, then it actually could be dangerous to other people. What is the, what is the intent? Why, what is the reasoning for wearing the kata? So there are um, different explanations that people would give you, right? Like some mm-hmm. people would say it's it's on your wrist to remind you that you should always engage in ethical actions. Uh, some people say the the circular form is a reminder of the eternality of God. Mm-hmm. There's no beginning or end. Oh, a circle. Yeah. Um, my primary relationship with my articles of faith comes from it comes from my relationship with my guru. So basically I see them as, as gifts from our prophets mm-hmm. who have given us these articles and in the same way that no one could. Well, let me give the analogy of a wedding ring. If you wear a wedding ring, it has more value to you personally because of the relationship it represents. It's not anything you could actually like. It's explain. a symbol. It's a symbol of the commitment that you've made. In that sense. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So for me, these these are like, symbols of mm-hmm. my relationship with my group. Reminders. Right? Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so for that reason, I cherish them. So okay. like that is why it's so hard for people to understand, I think, when they say, oh, you want to play basketball? And they say, no turbans. Like, why don't you just take off your turban? Is it a big deal? And for me, it is like my relationship with my guru is more important than my relationship to Greg Popovich, right? <laughs> even, though, even though I love Greg Popovich. <laughs> There's the San Antonio Spur in you, Yeah, exactly, right? exactly. So, yeah, I, I love these other things, but, like, mm-hmm. my, my primary relationship in life was, is with my faith and my guru, and so that's why I'm, I'm so unwilling to, to change myself mm-hmm. and, my, and, and my commitment because it really is a compromise that I'm not willing to make. After the break, Simran tells us what it's like to be a Sikh in America today. So you have the the unshorn hair, you have the small comb, the kata, which is the steel bracelet, and then Mm -hmm. there are two other items. Right. There's a kirpan. That's like a dagger. Okay. Uh, that's worn typically underneath the clothes. Um, and what is the what is the significance of that? Um, so so again, many Sikhs describe it as a reminder of a Sikh's duty to stand up for justice at all times. Okay. So that that one has been a tough one because in you know our current context of um, violence and weapons and national security, um, one of the compromises we've made as a community is to say, okay, um, as an entire community, as this, the entire Sikh community, right? As okay. as the Sikh community generally, we've sort of accepted the fact that kirpans will not be um, acceptable to carry on airplanes. Mm-hmm. So when I travel put mine in the suitcase and check it in. Okay. Um, they would not grant you a religious exemption for that? No, not right now, unfortunately. And that's and that's a tough one for us because it is, I mean, just as important as my hair is to me, mm-hmm. right? That's how important my kirpan is to me. And so um, it's it's always painful to do that. I mean, it's it's real compromise. And I know many Sikhs who refuse to to travel by, by air uh, because they're just unwilling to, oh, wow. to take off their kirpans. Okay. Um, Right. And, and again, like in any religion, people just have different relationships with these articles. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I don't, you know, I don't 
think people who are unwilling to fly are unreasonable. I, I think that's that's their that's the that's their interpretation, and that's how they want to honor it. Exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. Um, but regardless, it's it's tough to live in a society where it's not acceptable. Right there in in Canada, just across the border, uh, six openly carry their coupons. You know, outside of their clothes, people know what they are. Right. Mm-hmm. I think part of part of the real challenge we have in the U.S. is we don't actually know about one another's cultures and religions. We never learn them. And, and so that ignorance really fuels a lot of problems for minorities. Yeah, I want to talk, I want to dig into that. I want you to close the loop on the fifth item that you carry. Sure. Um, or that you wear, and it's the shoulder, soldier shorts, is that soldier right? Soldier shorts is, okay. yeah. I mean, there's no real good English translation for it. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, I use soldier shorts because it sort of marks uh, the historical context in which those were produced. But it, essentially, if you're um, trying to imagine it while sitting at home or walking around or wherever you are. Um, it's it's like boxer briefs. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, for many who sort of make this interpretation, there's there are people who have described it as a reminder about um, sexual discipline um, or discipline in general. Others have described it as, um, you know, coming from a context in which uh, the warriors were the ones who were actually wearing shorts like these at the time underneath their clothes so that it would they would still be able to engage hmm. um you know physically um but for me more than either of those two explanations it's it's that relationship back to back to my faith and the commitment and the commitment you made to the guru and the community exactly Who is, is the guru um the founder of the Sikh religion or do you have a specific guru prophet that you look up to that's still alive yeah great question so so the word guru generally uh, means teacher. It comes from Sanskrit, which uh, literally means enlightener, one who takes you from darkness to light. Um, so a guru, even in our modern sense, just means someone who's a teacher, enlightener, expert in some okay. field. Uh, in the Sikh tradition, it has a very particular meaning, and that's it's a term we use for our prophets. The first guru, Guru Nanak, was born in 1469. Uh, that's This year is 550 years since his birth. And he conceived of the religion, correct? He conceived of the religion um, and in- began institutionalizing it and building the community. Um, after him, there were a line of nine successors up until 1708. So so for about 250 years, um, we had living gurus, okay. human gurus. Um, and then after 1708, um, we have a sort of a joint authority that has been institutionalized for eternity. Um, one is the Guru Granth Sahib, which is the scripture uh, that was compiled by the gurus themselves. Um, and so that's essentially our text. What is the scripture called again? Guru Granth Sahib. Okay. So Granth, Granth means anthology, uh, and Sahib is a term of respect for, um, it, it's, it's a term of reverence. So... Okay. Um, Guru Granth Sahib, and the the other aspect of of the current Guru is the Guru Khalsa Panth, which is the community of committed six. Oh, okay. So it's the scripture and then the community. Exactly. The guru. So it's a very much a, a community that advocates for one another, but also holds one another accountable. Exactly. And and part of the reason for the structure is um, when Guru Nanak was young and looking around. He, he was. He found himself frustrated by what he was seeing in society around him, and you know, all these sorts of inequities and inequalities, um, some of which were being produced within religious structures themselves. Mm-hmm. Right? You have um, priestly classes who are taking advantage of people, 
um, or manipulating people or, or essentially insisting on serving as a middleman between the individual and God. And, and what Guru Nanak taught us was, you know, every individual should have their own relationship with God. It's not about, you know, somebody doing it for you. It's, it's really a personal, a personal aspect, right? Faith is personal. Um, and so he said, let's, let's eliminate the middleman and let's not have any clergy. Let's not have any sort of uh, top-down structure where people tell you how to live your religion. So we actually don't have in, in a sort of comparable sense to Christianity. Mm-hmm. Where do you worship then? Because I go to a church. If mm-hmm. you're Jewish, you go to a synagogue. If you're Muslim, you go to a mosque. Right. So where do you worship? We call it a gurdwara, which literally means the gateway to the guru. And, and every gurdwara has the scripture at the center. And one of the interesting things you'll see is every individual who is there at the gurdwara has equal right to perform services there. So like when I was growing up in Texas, there were no Sikhs around us. Uh, my parents taught us some of the basic musical and recitational traditions as kids. And so by the time we were six and seven, we were performing. Like we didn't have a gurdwara at the time. We were just mm-hmm. sort of meeting in different and people's homes. And a gurdwara is, it's a brick and mortar building, correct? Traditionally, okay. yes, exactly. And when we've had those since the time of Guru Nanak himself. So for centuries now, we've had gurdwaras. Um, but one of the things you'll see is in America, they look different than they do uh, in in Punjab, right? And in America, you you might have it in in an old church. Um, we used to, when I was growing up, we used to do it in people's homes, and then we started renting out community centers, okay, like neighborhood community centers. And then um, some places, you know, you'll see old churches that have been sold and then repurposed as gurdwaras. The one I go to now in New Jersey, it's in a business park. So it's an old office like building mm-hmm. and warehouse, and we've sort of remade it into a gurdwara. So. And you don't have clergy, so how does it, do you have a service? How does that work? We have a service. Most of our service consists of singing from the scriptures. So all of our scriptures are written to music. Um, and there are two themes. It's it's not really, um, it's not really narrative in the way that you would find in the Bible or even in the Quran. Um, mm-hmm. It's mostly song and it's, uh, the the primary themes are either how one can cultivate a relationship with divinity, or what it feels like to be in relationship with divinity. So it's it's simultaneously um, inspirational and aspirational. Okay. It's, it's it's essentially like if you listen to or if you read Sufi poetry, it's like those same sorts of themes. Mm-hmm. It's it's that type of. Um, literature um, all about sort of a relationship with some greater force than yourself um, and how to find that and how to break. I think one of the central themes um, is how do you break all the sorts of dichotomies and divisions we've sort of produced for for ourselves and how we look at the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so how do I get beyond this sort of idea of good versus bad um, or um, how do I stop seeing evil or how do I stop uh, giving in to my ego, right? Things like that, which which sort of separate this idea of us versus them. Like, how, mm-hmm. do, how do we get rid of that boundary? Um, and so that's that's what our service is like. It's mostly singing. And, you know, you'll have kids up there singing. You'll have... Is it traditionally you know, on a Sunday, a Saturday? Historically, it was every day or any day. Um, we don't really have any belief that a certain day is more appropriate uh, for worship than another. Um, in modern America, it just is the easiest to do mm-hmm. a service on Sunday morning. So that's okay. kind of become the norm. 
And how long does it last? I know I go to church service and it can be really long sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, same. Um, it can you have last... people checking their watches like how long? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It can last all day. Um, it can last all day? It can last all day. The one the one where I go, it doesn't. Um, well, I mean, I think the nice thing is you can you can dip in and out. Okay. Um, and it's all musical. So, you know, you sit and you listen for a bit. You sing along um, and you step out as you will. Um, the one where we go, um, it's about two hours for the program. And okay. then followed by a sort of a communal meal, which we call Lunger. All right. um, in our tradition, that's a really important aspect of of the service. It's, it's a time for people to sort of connect with one mm-hmm. another. Um, and, and also... In and of itself, Lunger is sort of politically and socially subversive. The idea was, let's have everyone who has been taught that they're better or worse than each other sit together on the floor uh, and enjoy a meal together. And, and you know, the meal was free. It was always, and, and it still is, it's, it, it remains uh, a really compelling sort of reason for people to come visit the Gurdwara. Mm. Uh, whether you're sick or not, you're always welcome. And so... I'd love to experience it sometime. Oh yeah, it's so it's so delicious. <laughs> yeah, but it's, I mean, it's 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 heartening to just like sit on the ground together with people mm-hmm. you don't know and to be in relationship with one another. There's something really powerful about that. It really is. And you mentioned a little bit ago about the many misconceptions of the Sikh faith. A lot of people think that you're a cross between Islam and Hindu, which is not correct. Right. Exactly. Right. Yeah, I think. Um, I, th- I think there are. There, there are a number of misconceptions. That's that to me is probably the most frustrating, um, because I think you know if you, if you if you see it from the perspective of a Sikh, what's frustrating about about being so visible is that we're also completely invisible. Like people just don't know mm. anything about Sikhism. Wow. And if you look at the studies, like seventy percent of Americans don't even know what you mean if you say the word Sikh, like S I K H. If you said like, they would have never heard of it. I I've right, heard so. of the, the the Sikh religion, but I didn't. I be honest, I didn't know a whole lot about it. Right, right, exactly. And I mean, it's 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 not. I, I don't blame people. I think our we live in a world right now where like we just don't value learning about one another. I mm-hmm. mean, we don't value one another. Why would we teach each other about our, our traditions, right? Um, and so that's just sort of how how we've decided to do things, and and it's it becomes really harmful to people. And so that's that to me is why it's I find it so frustrating that Sikhism, despite having you know its own founder, prophet, scripture, community centers, all these things we've discussed so far, is still somehow labeled as as a mix or a branch or an offshoot of other traditions, right? So, so as a scholar of religion, I'm just like I, I don't understand how anybody could make such an argument. Right, let alone such a statement. Um, the question about being Muslim, I think, stems from that, right? That sort of general ignorance. How often do people mistake you for Muslim? I, I don't know. Like people don't people don't say it. I mean, I. It's more. It's easier for me to see when people are fearful of me, right? Which happens all the time, right? I'll get on the subway and the mom next to me pulls their kid closer to them so they're not saying like that that's the worst that have you ever said anything to anyone not to a mom protecting their mm-hmm. kid right like that's i'm a parent too and i understand like the most important thing is the safety of your kid right. so like i understand where that comes from but part of where that comes from is is our general ignorance right if she really knew what my turban meant 
she would have the exact opposite reaction, right? Mm-hmm. Like that I that I actually am there for the the ideas of oneness and love and justice and that I would give up my life to protect that kid as opposed to to hurt that kid in any way, right? So is that tough. one of the tenets you would you, that self sacrifice that you would give up your life to protect another? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, I, this is modeled to us from one of our gurus who who was approached by a community that was being persecuted. Hindus were being persecuted at the time uh, in North India, and um, they were unable to find any recourse. And they eventually went to the ninth Sikh guru, Guru Tegh Bahadur, um, and asked for his help. And he went and stood up to the emperor. Um, and he was killed for it. And, you know, he wasn't, the Sikh community wasn't being persecuted. Like, they were fine. Uh, he was fine. He didn't have to say anything. Um, but he said something, and he was unwilling to back down to the point where he was killed. And and for us, you know, that's happened over and over again in our tradition. Um, and for us, it really stands as the model for what it looks like to be an ally and an, accompli- and an accomplice, right? Like, you don't just say you have someone's back you actually go and have their back that's that's our belief and that's our tradition even for those that have offended you even for those who have offended us i think the point is you always stand for justice and you always stand up for the oppressed and so to go back to your question about being Mm. confused for muslim like that example really informs how i respond to that to me in trying to be like ruthake bother the question has always been how do i deal with being conflated, being confused as a Muslim in a way that doesn't then go around and hurt my fellow Muslims. Mm. Um, what's the what's the solution to that? <laughs> there's, it's never easy. Mm. Um, it's always, I mean, for me, it always stems from a place of what's the most uh, loving response that produces the most love, right? So here's here's something that Guru Tegh Bahadur, that ninth Guru, said uh, before he died. He said, He said, the, the, the truly wise person is one who neither fears anyone nor frightens anyone. Mm. And, and to me, it's such a profound statement, right? It seems simple. Um, but when you're in a moment where things are complicated, right? Like let's say I'm on the street or on an airplane and somebody assumes I'm on a I'm a Muslim and has a racial slur for me and doesn't want to sit next to me, right? Which and is, that happens. Which has happened. Um, then how do I both respond to that with my own dignity, right? I'm not fearful of this person. I want to stand with my head up high. Um, and I want to stand up for myself. Yet you don't want to frighten that person. But I don't want to. fearful nor fright. Right. And everyone else on the plane who's already scared of, you know, the bearded turban guy who got pulled over by security, right? And how do I... <laughs> so it's complicated. And, and so I'm, I'm always reflecting on that wisdom of Guru Tegh Bahadur's of like, essentially his point is like retain your own humanity and recognize the humanity of others, right? It comes back to a principle that's super simple, um, but in certain situations, it's not so simple. But since I was a kid, like I've just learned how to be safe when people are following me or like when someone says something. Do you feel like you have to be careful when you're out in public? I Let me say it this way. I'm not fearful but i am cautious and i don't i don't think it's necessarily always conscious Hmm. like when you live this way for your whole life like just being thoughtful about the people around you and who when you might be in danger you don't really think about it you just sort of know and i think like when i talk to a lot of my female friends they say the same thing right like i know what situations to stay away from Mm -hmm. i know when people are looking at me in a certain way like to avoid them i know when to 
make sure that I have someone with me. Right. Um, it's it's a, it's a similar sort of feeling where you don't you can't really fully articulate. It. There's no way to measure it, and there's no single answer. Like it's always context specific. Right. I like to ask my guests a couple of standard questions, and the first being, where do you think that you would be without your sick faith? Um, I'd probably still be in Texas, happy <laughs> eating tacos. <laughs> um, cheering yeah. for the Spurs. Cheering for the Spurs. Yeah, life would be good still. Um, but I, one, of, one of the big changes, I think, is I don't think I would have had the types of experiences with oppression that have sort of formed the person I've become today. Like so much of my life is driven by fighting for justice through education, right? Like mm-hmm. that's why I became a professor. That's why I work for a civil rights organization. That's why I do everything that I do. Um, and it really has to do with my experience of injustice, right? And so feeling that so deeply and raw, feeling it so deeply mm-hmm. and, and watching my community, you know, people that I knew and people that I didn't know, uh, but all people that I felt connected to, um, just struggling. If you had one word to describe your faith, what would it be? Loving. It's good. It's an easy one. I've, I've said it like <laughs> 10 times already. <laughs> to cop out. <laughs> but it's inherently what the Sikh faith is about, loving and oneness. Yeah. And I mean, it, it's for us, it's simultaneously um, the end goal is mm-hmm. to be loving what do six believe about the afterlife? It's it's a tough question. Um, That's why I, I asked with it. A, can I start? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're a good. You're a good journalist. Can I um? Can I start with a like a story that maybe doesn't totally make sense? Sure. Okay. Um, growing up in Texas, I was obsessed with this question, and everywhere I looked, I could not get an answer. Um, there are references to reincarnation um, throughout our scriptures. There's also references, multiple references, to heaven and hell. Um, and there's no place I could find where there was actual clarity. And I knew most Sikhs believed in reincarnation in the way that Buddhists and Hindus do, in, in, in some sense, right, a broad sense of reincarnation. Um, but I couldn't find, like, a direct explanation of what that was or how it worked or like even in scripture like something that definitively said it right and i just it drove me crazy and i think the main reason it drove me crazy um is that all of my friends had such clear ideas of afterlife and it was such an important part of their theology to them i could see very clearly like the answer to why they were doing what they were doing was this clear idea of heaven and hell right it was it was so important to them and i didn't know what what yeah, so people would ask me, I would say, I, I don't know, and then I would feel like my religion was um, insufficient. Right? Are there no clear answers in the scriptures? There aren't, and I just couldn't come to terms with that until I I was about 18 or 19 when I actually started studying the religion. Like, I grew up as a Sikh, but, like, I didn't really study. I had a basic understanding of it. I practiced it. Um, but it was when I was about 18 or 19 I talked to someone about this question. Um, and he was like, you know, you're asking this. He was like, why are you asking this question? I was like, my, all my friends, they know. <laughs> because Christians I live know. in Texas. That's yeah, exactly. why I'm answering <laughs> exactly. this question. I was like, Christians know and like Muslims <laughs> know and Jews know. Like, why don't, why mm-hmm. don't I know? Um, and, and this person responded to me and said like, well, what if I told you that it's, it's unclear on purpose? And I, you know, kind of 
intentional ambiguity. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And I was like, why, why would that be? Um, and he said, well, maybe um, it's, it's intentionally ambiguous because it doesn't matter and it shouldn't matter. Like there's no way for us to know. We don't in anywhere in our scripture, we don't sort of theorize about things that aren't a part of this life that we don't know. Um, everything is sort of practical about how to live in this life. So, like, why would you expect mm. some sort of explanation as to what happens after? Like, what difference does it make to you? Because you're intentionally living in the moment and in the present. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. And 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 what I learned throughout this conversation, and it, like, really shifted my thinking, um, was two things. One, I was asking the questions because I was living in a society where that was the question people were asking, right? I, I, it was those questions were shaping me rather than and, and forming my expectations of my religion as opposed to the religion itself giving me an opportunity to provide itself as a coherent system. Mm-hmm. So I was, I was becoming biased by my surroundings. That's the point. The second thing was that I took away from this conversation, and, and I knew this at the time. I just couldn't sort of put the pieces together. The Sikh tradition teaches that salvation is achieved within this life. And the idea is, I'll, I'll, I'll give it to you as, as one of our gurus wrote it, uh, the fifth prophet, Guru Arjun, he says, Raj na chau, mukat na chau, man kam lare. He says, I don't care about power. I don't care about Raj. Mukat um, na I don't care about salvation. Man kam lare. All I want is to be in love. And love for us is the end goal. And love is something you achieve within this life. I am loving learning so much about the Sikh faith. Mm. I really am. And um, that's what this whole journey is about. It's about sitting down and listening to people, not trying to change their mind, but just listening and learning. And I'm so glad that that you have been willing to come on the podcast and really talk about your beautiful faith and what it means to you. Yeah, thank you. The The general sense of Sikh, Sikh literally translates to learner. So mm. I think like in, in that spirit, you know, I'm, I'm with you. Like learning is is our way to accessing more light so Mm -hmm. yeah thank you for the opportunity simranjit singh thank you so much thank you appreciate it and a big thanks to you for listening make sure you subscribe if you haven't done so already and i hear that these ratings are really important so if you could give us a rating i'd appreciate that as well big thanks to the team here at abc radio couldn't do it without them Susie Liu, lewis millman mike debusky sean griffin brianna montalvo Josh Cohan, and Andrew Kalb. I'll talk to you all next week. Thanks for listening to Journeys of Faith.